Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodsick. I know we've been on a bit of hiatus. I've been doing this thing called grad school and also Fort Collins Fringe and also Boulder Fringe. So I've been a busy person, but excited to get back in the saddle as it were. Uh, This is episode 104 with Heather Beasley. We sat down and we chatted about Boulder Ensemble Theatre Company's upcoming productions of The Revolutionists, which goes into previews tonight, Break Legs, everyone. Check it out. It runs through October 8th at Dairy Arts Center. We have links in our episode description for more information about Betsy and where you can get tickets for this show. Check it out. French Revolution... Female spies, espionage, assassination, playwriting. You know you want to see it. Come on now. This episode is sponsored by Panfocal Photography. If y'all saw my publicity photos for a genderqueer cabaret, which almost won Best Attended of Boulder Fringe, those were taken by William Dibble of Panfocal Photography. I also have an upcoming show, Under Construction, directed by Meredith Grundy, which you may have seen images on my social feed, the Norman Rockwell-esque Americana ones. Those are by William as well. He's an extremely talented photographer, and so if you have an event locally in the Boulder area, Denver, I would recommend him. Please visit his website. Please go and like Panful Photography on Facebook. Thanks for listening, everyone, and enjoy episode 104 with Heather Beasley. Hi, folks. The theatrical Mustang is riding again in our first guest back from hiatus is Heather Beasley. Welcome to the podcast, Heather. Hello. We're talking, we're going to talk about a very, very fun, even audacious play, might we say, The Revolutionists. It's opening soon with Boulder Ensemble Theater Company. Tell me all about it. So Lauren Gunderson wrote this fantastic play about four badass women during the reign of terror and the French Revolution. And so three of them are actual historical figures. Uh, one of them you've probably heard of, Marie Antoinette. Yes. Um, who did not, by the way, say let the meat cake, and that matter does come we up. We put those words into her mouth, huh? We did indeed. Shoot. And uh, so she's featured in the play, as well as a famous assassin, uh, very saucy, a saucy assassin, <laughs> uh, Charlotte Corday, who assassinated Jean-Paul Marat. Um, you probably know him if you've ever studied the art of the French Revolution as the guy in the bathtub who was stabbed. She was responsible. She did the stabbing. She did indeed. <laughs> and so we see we see her in the play prior to that event. Gotcha. Um, well, she's seeking someone to, to help her with the wisdom that she needs to make it happen. And so she seeks out a playwright, a famous French feminist playwright, whose name is Olympe de Gouges. Um, not well-known, but she should be better known. Um, well, the French had the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, and that was the famous Declaration of the French Revolution. Well, Ms. de Gouges came up with the Declaration of Women, the Declaration of the Rights of Women and the Female Citizen, and she tried to get it to pass through the National Assembly, and it did not. Not so much. Not so much. Ugh. And her plays, much the same, were not so popular, um, with French audiences, largely because they put forward very controversial themes. Um, feminism, uh, an abolition, the end of slavery in the French colonies, um, and tried. she was very politically active and very engaged with women's rights, 
and is a pretty fascinating character to build a play around. I had I had no idea. I feel like that same, aha, I should have known about this moment as I did when I encountered, I never say it right, but Af- Afrobem, isn't that the sort of the English, and that's reminding me of her story a little bit. But she was a spy, too. So, badass women getting it done in the 1800s, eh? Yep, and our fourth woman is a spy. Okay. Um, she's from the island of, I hope I get the pronunciation right, San Domingue, which is now Haiti, that right. I can pronounce. And so the playwright came up with a fictional composite of what it would have been like to be a free woman of color in the island of Saint Domingue, and to come to Paris and try and advocate for an abolition of slavery in all of the French colonies, which was a pressing issue in 1793-1794 when the play takes place. So Marianne Angel, our fourth character, is a Haitian spy, or soon-to-be Haitian, already spy, (laughs) who's the fourth character in our quartet of lovely French women on stage. Wow. So how did you, I mean, Lauren Gunderson is, is local, right? And sort of a playwright with her star on the rise nationally at OSF, just hitting the scene, painting it red. So she's based in California, and she's worked with a ton of, last, last year alone, I think we had three different productions in Locally, Colorado. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Work. So she's been, she's gotten a lot of attention. She, last year in 2016, she was the most produced living American playwright. Wow. Not with the qualifier of women. Not with the qualifier of female. That's incredible. Yes, she's doing amazing work all over the country, and I think a lot of the things that she does in addition to her amazing plays is that she's very giving of herself as a playwright to her public. And so, for example, she last spring we did her play Silent Sky, and she did a couple of talkbacks with our audience by Skype. So she we Skyped her in, and we chatted with her audience, and she's going to do the same thing for us this fall when we produce The Revolutionist Amazing. over the next few weeks. And so it's fun to get to interact with working playwrights like that and find out what they're thinking and how they started and what inspired them. It really makes a big difference to our audiences, too, to get to see how the sausage is made, so to speak. Absolutely. Can you tell me about the cast for this show? Some of them I've seen on stage and I'm kind of fangirling out a little bit, uh, <laughs> but I'm excited to see what they bring to this production. Sure. So the lovely Olon de Gouge is played by our managing director, Rebecca Romaley, who is appearing in her Oomph Betsy production, <laughs> but she often directs in addition to being on stage, so it's always a pleasure to see her on the stage. Um, Marie Antoinette is played by the lovely Adrian Egolf who recently appeared in White Rabbit, Red Rabbit, uh, which is a really cool script, and I wish I could talk about it, but it's an amazing (laughs) show. (laughs) And then uh, Jada Dixon is playing Marianne Angel for us. And she was in The Firestorm with local theater last year. she was. And then our fourth actress is Meyer Higgins. And maybe it's Mary Higgins. I'm afraid I just mauled her name pronunciation. Um, but she was in our uh, world premiere last year of Full Code at Betsy. And she was fantastic in and that. And she was just fantastic. And she is stunning in this particular comedy. So she plays the playwright, She yes? plays the assassin. The assassin. Yes, yeah, she plays Good. our Charlotte Corday. So our sexy <laughs> assassin. <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah. Uh, podcast is an audio medium, but I'm, I'm just shaken over here with excitement. Well, when do you open and where can folks get tickets for this show? Well, previews start Thursday, September 14th, and our official opening night is Saturday the 16th. Tickets can be gotten through the Dairy Box office at 303-444-SEAT, or <laughs> <laughs> um, also through Betsy.org. If you check out our website, you'll 
find the show and find a gateway to tickets. Excellent. And you have this new program that's, as a grad student myself, super exciting, and it's called Go Live. Can you tell me about it, why you felt there was this need as a company, and how folks can get more information about it? Absolutely. So we as a company are part of a number of companies who are super concerned that there aren't enough younger audiences coming to the theater. There's so much competition for attention and for entertainment that we wanted to make the theater a really welcoming place. And when we read how other theater companies were studying this problem, oftentimes, not surprisingly, they found that ticket cost was a big barrier to attending. Because live theater is more expensive than a month worth of Netflix. It's just a, it's a fact. Fact in life. And so in terms of offering people an experience that's worth their time and their money, which we certainly believe that we do in the theater, we decided we were going to target high school and college and graduate students as people that we could reach through their schools rather than trying to market to them directly as individuals, right. which is a little bit more challenging. So we thought we could reach out through schools, through teachers, and also through departments and programs to offer students a chance to attend our shows for even half the half price, half price ticket. Because our student tickets are approximately half our regular price, but then our new member program, Go Live, is half price of the half price. Because we wow. really want people to come and see the shows, but also just be on cheap tickets. We want to tell people about volunteer opportunities, internships, job opportunities, and really what we're hoping to do over time is to start a dialogue. Uh, we want to have a group of students that we can ask for advice or go to for opinions and get their sense of how things are working, what we can do better, and really be able to serve that section of our community more effectively. So that was what motivated the program. I think it's incredible that, that you're doing that because it is a huge, and when I was in Seattle, like, a lot of folks, when they would when they would uh, budget for their shows, they would set aside some hospitality seats, even, or that would be an option for other patrons to sort of fund the seat of someone for whom a ticket price would be a barrier. Uh, that's it's congratulations for doing that, making that so. Um, and so, if people want more information about this program, should they visit the Betsy website? If they come to the Betsy website, they'll all you have to do is look for Go Live, and you can. Find sign up button. for it right there, and it is free to sign up, and then you can decide which shows you want to purchase tickets for after that. And I actually want to say a word about why we aren't just giving away tickets for free, because I think that's really important. It's important psychologically. Yeah. So what we found out, we have, we actually offered free student rush for an hour before shows. If we had tickets left, they were free. If you had a student ID, we offered that for years, and we found that very few people took advantage of it. And one of the reasons is that opportunity cost, you know, people didn't want to show up and then find out there weren't seats, which we can understand. But also, people didn't want to invest anything, so they didn't show up to come see the show. And other theaters have also found that asking people to pay just a little bit of an opportunity cost, like $5 or $10 yeah. for a seat, really ensures that people are going to show up and take advantage of the benefit. Well, I remember can. that from... I. Some some folks some some of our listeners know I have, I have half of an MFA in arts leadership degree, but that was one of the when we're, when we talked in the marketing class about setting a ticket price points. Yeah, there's that perceived value, right? If it's free, well, maybe maybe I will, maybe I won't show up. But even that couple bucks, five to ten bucks, that you know increases someone's investment in 
in that theatrical opportunity. So, well and said. I, Thank you for bringing that up. Sure. And I think we see it, especially when we think of other things that we buy instead, that sometimes people think, oh, we should have the arts for free. Well, how good can it be if it's free? <laughs> if you think of a free app versus an app you pay for. Or other situations where just for a small investment, you do you do expect a better product. And we know that we produce a professional quality product, and we want people to come and see it. Well, I'm excited. I'll be there. Uh, what Do you want to sort of run us through the rest of Betsy's season this year? You have some fun, exciting stuff coming up. Sure. So we, after we close The Revolutionists, we go right into our next world premiere, which is by Anna Munch called Birds of North America. And it's a father-daughter play. A father and daughter meet every year for 10 years in their family's backyard to go bird watching together. And while they're going through that time, they're politically very different. And the play is very much about how we stay in relationship with the people that we love, even when we can't stand them politically <laughs> or otherwise, and have that history of family arguments and tension, but with the underlying love of it, against a backdrop of birding and climate change and the way those decisions are impacting the world around us. So it's really a beautiful microcosm of a story with a larger framework that has an issue that's very important to us as well. Then we have a little bit of holiday fun. <laughs> uh, here in Boulder, we're doing Every Christmas Story Ever Told and Then Some, which is exactly what the title promises. <laughs> and that's a, that's a fun three-person run through just about every Christmas story you can ever think of. In Denver, we'll be doing the Santa Land Diaries as a co-production at the Denver Love Center. That show. Yay, David Sedaris. And then in the winter, we will be producing the regional premiere of Guards at the Taj by Rajiv Joseph. And that is a story of two guards on the night before the Taj Mahal opens who are given a memorable task that changes the way we see the Taj Mahal itself forever. Intriguing. Very dark, very funny, very bloody comedy. And then our final show of the season is Going to a Place Where You Already Are by Becca Brunstetter. She's also a screenwriter. She writes for American Gods and This Is Us. Oh, yeah. And so she goes back and forth between stage and film. And this play in particular has really been close to our hearts for a couple of years. And we're really excited to get to do it. Um, it's a play about a couple. They attend a funeral. And as a result of attending the husband's secretary's funeral, who they barely knew, the wife has a religious experience. And neither of them have ever been particularly religious before. And how they can communicate about what she's experienced or her lack of belief, his 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 lack of belief, the how we talk about faith when we don't share a language for it mm. with the people we're closest to and the people that we love. And then the couple's granddaughter is also sort of entering her first serious relationship and thinking about big life issues as well. And so it's this sweet story of two generations that are facing some really significant life changes. And it's an exploration of life and faith and the afterlife. It sounds like an amazingly curated season. And if I'm doing the math right, three female playwrights out of four? Yes. For the... For the non-Christmas shows. Anyway. Oh, and we have a special project. We have a special project. Tell me about our special project. Um, so we're doing in January, in, co in collaboration with the Bodecker Cinema here at the Dairy, we're doing what's called the P3M5 project, because it's really long to say the plurality of privacy and five-minute play. We're not calling it that. We're just saying <laughs> P3M5. Okay. And it, it began in Germany, and what it is is 
this institute in Germany commissioned 15 theater companies in the U.S. and Europe to go commission a playwright and write a short play about the idea of privacy in the modern age. And so Ooh. they created 15 plays and then created 15 companion films for each of those plays where the film, in most cases, is a filmed version of the play. So you watch either or. Right. So we're going to be showing, um, of those 15, I think we're going to end up with about 12 altogether. But we're going to show a mix of plays and films in January, and that'll be here at the Bodecker Cinema. And then we're also looking to tour that to some area high schools and have some discussions about internet privacy and state privacy and personal privacy within the family, mother-daughter, father-son, and some of the issues that come up about how we conceive of privacy in the era of the internet. That's fascinating. I had no idea that this existed, and now I'm marking my calendar for January, and so those will all be, will they be in the bow? Yes, they'll right. actually be right in the cinema, which is a fun space for us, too, because we've never gotten to stage a play there. So. I, it's such a love, I love, I have a great love of those, like, 75 seat spaces and whenever whenever I go in the bow I tell Glenn that it's like the Annie Baker's piece the flick because I directed yes. that and I'm like this is the whole thing like in between each show like that's where all the scenes take place and I read an article in the New York Times that said the length of the production is determined by how many seats you have on stage <laughs> that is Which brilliant. Is the kind of thing that like a theater nerd like me just geeks out on like 110%. Um, I want to pivot now to your personal theatrical artistic journey. Is there, can you remember a moment where you were younger and absolutely, is there a moment that you can pinpoint where you like fell in love with theater completely? Or was it like more a slow burn? <laughs> so when I was 10, we were on family vacation, and we were in Minneapolis. We walked into the motel we checked into, and some businessman who I wish I knew, oh my goodness, had left four, four tickets to the Guthrie Theater and said, I can't use them. Give them to the first person. Anybody who can take them, show starts in two hours. Really? And so my dad was like, sure, free tickets, we'll go. <laughs> so we went to go see Moliere's The Misanthrope at the Guthrie, which was this amazing, beautiful production, and I had no idea, none of us in my family knew anything about the story, nothing about the playwright, it was just free tickets, snazzy theater, let's go see it. Yeah. Shiny. <laughs> and so, um, we get to the middle of the play, and it's, again, on the eve of the French Revolution, which is kind of funny, but there, <laughs> there you have it. Full circle. And so, um, the, the woman in the play is a sculptor. Whereas the title character, the misanthrope, has just made her very angry. So they have an they have an argument, and he storms out, and she's she's going to destroy the sculpture she's working on, and she tears the head off off of it, and she throws it after him, so it goes on the door, uh, and she has a live male model that she's been sculpting, and she rips his sheet off, so he's bare naked, uh, and storms uh, out, and I'm ten. And I have just seen, like, amazing theater, things catching on fire, scratching ceramics and naked men, and I am in. This is this is the thing. I, I have found my place. This is great. So is that production. So how did your sort of personal artistic trajectory, where where did you go from that very, uh, I, I love the sound effect. Like, I can hear it in my head of the clay thwomping. <laughs> if that's the beginning of your theatrical journey, where do you go next? Christmas pageants. 
Yeah. Lots of those. Right, <laughs> as, as with most of us. Yep, the rest of grade school was lots of Christmas pageants, um, some musicals in high school, lots of chorus parts. Uh, studied actually English more in college than sure. I did theater, did theater on the side, enjoyed it quite a bit, and uh, decided that I really liked theater history, and I wanted to take more classes in theater. I wasn't even sure I wanted to go to graduate school quite. I thought I wanted to teach, but I wasn't dead positive. And then I got a full ride to go to Villanova University. And they have a master's program where you basically run a professional theater company for two years with faculty that oversee you and lead your classwork. And so my two years there really solidified not only the artist side of me, but the administrator side of me. I worked in the costume shop while I was there, but I also got a lot of chances to see things like how production seasons were chosen and how production teams were put together and how casting and the audition process worked and how uh, a theater could be part of a larger theater community and give back and forth to other theaters and promoting their work when they didn't have anything going on and their own house was dark, or even when they were busy, building those relationships so that people could wish each other well and see each other's shows and really be part of a vibrant community. So I learned a lot about that there that I knew I wanted to take into my future work. You are speaking my language, friend. Yeah, I just, I think it's the rare person that thrives off of both the artistic and the administrative logistical and that's the way my brain works and it can never not work that way and so it's it's great when I can find another kindred spirit who sort of holds that same space for both of those aspects uh so what point in this timeline do you make it out to Colorado um when I finished my master's I got accepted to see you for the PhD program here so that's actually what brought me to Colorado Doctor of Theater. Yes. Right on. And so I started here in 99, finished in 2003. And during those years, for a variety of reasons, there was a lot of turnover in the faculty in the department. Sure. But again, that created a lot of opportunity for exciting things to happen. I helped co-found the Boulder Fringe Festival that the students still run on campus there. Wow. And so we got it up off the ground the first year, and we made sure it happened again. And then we sat back and watched third year because we were tired. <laughs> but it was really a wonderful experience to learn how to work both within the university administrative structure, but yeah. also like, how do you fund that? How do you get money so people can try experiments? How do you manage when you have 25 student groups that all want to do something? How do you make it fair? How do you make it make a profit so you can do it again? How do you balance all of those competing interests? And so it really was kind of a laboratory in some ways, as well as all of the academic aspects of it sure. to practice what it was like to to try those experiments, to try mounting shows and mounting larger festivals and starting to play with those tools that led me to arts administrative work. So, Do you have a favorite theater war story or production from that time? <laughs> this, I saw an amazing all-female cast of Zoo Story, which you're totally not allowed no. to do because but because it was like in a classroom and it was two students and it was the fringe and we weren't charging admission for anything, is still one of my favorite things I've ever seen. And I look forward to 2071 or whenever we can actually finally see that on stage because I think it'll be a lot of fun. I have so much to say right now. Um, well, that I mean, it's interesting because for my, for my thesis and what I'm kind of interested in, in digging into is 
how far should a playwright's reach be into the casting? I mean, I think there are some examples like, yeah, the folks who cast two white actors in The Mountaintop to make a statement, to me that is a clear case of no, don't do that. But then when we talk about estates, because Albie isn't even making these decisions anymore, right? It's the estate of Albie that's trying to continue what he would want the artistic integrity of his pieces to be and then to last year have that uh, show in or earlier this year actually the show in Portland who wanted to cast an African American actor as Nick mm-hmm. and having Albie shut that down I'm really interested in in terms of more more so than because I know that there are some playwrights where um, you can't have like a woman play a male role or mm-hmm. change the role to be a different gender but I'm really curious in terms of like can a playwright specify that a role needs to be played by a cisgender actor like can they have that level of detail in it and so i'm absolutely fascinated by that and trying to find the people who might have the answers to that but that was a bit of a tangent which my viewers what you're welcome first tangent since we've been back fantastic um so how did you how did you wend your way into betsy and in your position now so uh, my husband's an astrophysicist. What? <laughs> and uh, right after we finished our PhDs here, he his was in astrophysics and mine was in theater. Uh, we moved That's to Arizona. Play right there. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so we, mo- we moved to Arizona for a couple of years, and then he got his uh, he got a job back here at CU, uh, running the sounding rocket program, and so. It was very difficult for me to come back to the one place I went to school and try and find an academic position because a lot of people want to stay in Colorado. Right. So what I did instead is I went into academic administration and I started working first in the dean's office and then in some other departments around the university. But at the same time, I found Betsy and I joined them during their second show. I stage managed their second show for them, which was a collection of two one-act John Patrick Shanley plays. Mm. Savage in Limbo and Danny in the Deep Blue Sea. Had a wonderful time working with them and have worked with them ever since, since the company has grown from basically a labor of love, project by project, production by production, to the full production season we have now with a two full-time staff and three part-time staff. Congratulations. I, those are the kind of like happy endings that make my heart sing in terms of, in terms of the theatrical world. Um, so what's next for you? I mean, do you do you consider yourself primarily an arts administrator, or do you save that, carve that personal theater artist time out for yourself as well? I do carve some personal artist time out for myself. I'm also a mom, so I'm getting better at finding the personal artist time now. Gotcha! That I, yeah! My, my kids are a little bit older and a little less demanding of my time now that they're 12 and 9. They're, you know, they do have bedtimes. They do read on their own. It's fantastic! And they come to see my work, too, which is great. Um, so it's so wonderful watching them watch something that I've worked on is the best it's the best Wow. Um, but personal personal artist stuff Um, in addition to dramaturgy I also literary manage for the company so I read hundreds and hundreds of plays a year which has made me really want to get back to my own writing so I've been doing more of that um, both in terms of nonfiction and fiction writing in the past year and I'm hoping to continue to develop that well keep at it congratulations that's awesome to have that's the kind of life that I want when I grow up I don't know if I'll ever grow up uh but I haven't yet not yet okay cool there's hope for me still then (laughs) um what since you've been able to experience the 
theatrical community from so many different perspectives. What if if you were writing your little, I don't know, BuzzFeed post of top ten things I learned in the theater industry? What advice would you give, sort of, to folks who are coming up through the ranks? I think the more that you can be open to the fact that there are brilliant people all around you, and the more that you can find, the more you can surround yourself with the talented people that exist everywhere around you, the more you can pay attention to everyone else around you, the better you're going to be. Because theater's a collaborative art. And so if you have wonderful people who want to work with you, it's going to make your work stronger and stronger. And the more you can grow that community of people who are like, oh yeah, that's that's going to be fun. That's going to be a good, I want to do, I want to see that. I want to do that. I want to take part in that. The more you have that network of enthusiasm surrounding you, the more when things go wrong, you can fall back on that and be like, oh, okay, this was a setback, but there's tomorrow and there's something else. I'm going to have another good idea. There are going to be other people around me who are going to come up with even better ideas than I have that are going to make us move forward. And that that forward movingness, not not resting too much in a place of, I didn't get the role, I didn't get the thing, I didn't get the funding, I didn't get the fill in the blank. That everybody has good days and bad days, but the more great people you have around you, the more good days you have. That is well said. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Let's push out the dates for the Revolutionists. Again, you open on September 14th preview, September 16th. The show's open, and it runs through October 8th. All right, folks, get your tickets either Betsy's website, you can get them on the Dairy's website, you can call the Dairy. We'll have all that info in the episode description. Thanks so much for sitting down and talking with me, Heather. Oh, sure. This was fun. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.